This is District Sentinel Radio. I'm Sam Sachs, broadcasting out of the MAYRIP, the Middle East Report studio in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. Got some bonus content for you today. Remember a few weeks ago when uh, a group of American mercenaries were caught armed to the teeth in Haiti? What the hell was going on there? Well, we caught up with Jake Johnson, a research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who just published a report trying to get an answer to that question. Just what the hell is going on in Haiti? We brought Jake on to talk about it. And here's our interview. Jake, uh, when I read your article, I thought that it sounded like the start of a John le Carré story. A bunch of American private security contractors with ties to Haitian elites arrested near the Central Bank of Haiti with a bunch of guns. And a bunch of license plates. And a bunch of license plates. Uh, can you explain why the current political situation in Haiti makes this scenario even uh, more intriguing than it sounds on paper? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it sounds it sounds sort of crazy and, and like too crazy to be true. Uh, but I think, you know, it is and the reason why I think it's become so important and continues to be so is the broader context around uh, this whole situation. And so, you know, when this group was was arrested in Haiti, it was February 17th. And that had been uh, there had been nine days of sort of massive protests, street barricades and other actions calling for the president to resign. So, you know, virtually the entire economy ground to a halt, you know, flights. When I flew down to Haiti that week, you know, there was maybe 20 people on the flight going down there. And, you know, so it really sort of shut things down. This was a significant crisis, right? And it had really been going on for months. Um, You know, it started actually in July. There was uh, the government tried to raise fuel prices, led to, you know, another sort of bout of unrest. And there have been sort of ebbs and flows of these massive protests, uh, you know, against the government over the last few months. And so this has really sort of been building and building and building. And this seems to be the sort of, you know, the nadir, the, the, the pinnacle of this effort to, uh, you know, against the government. And so it was that week <laughs> that all of a sudden this happens. Right. And so, again, like that is the context. And, and so it sort of has to be viewed in terms of this political fight happening in Haiti. And whenever there's a political fight in Haiti, uh, it also brings in the international community, and especially the United States. So what do we know about the contractors themselves? And uh, perhaps more importantly, what do we know about the company they were working for and their ties to Haitian officials? Yeah, so I mean, when you look at the actual contractors themselves, and, and you know, this is really sort of shocking. It was like, you know, within hours of their arrest, uh, you know, their identities were widely known in Haiti. Pictures of their passports were circulating, the cache of weapons and equipment they were with. Uh, you know, and so it happened pretty quickly. You can sort of, it wasn't very difficult. You just go online and sort of start Googling these guys. And it was really clear uh, where most of their backgrounds were. I mean, you got two former Navy SEALs, a former Marine. Uh, almost all of these guys had connections to various, you know, security companies, consultancies, or straight military connections. What was really odd was that it was uh, all sort of disparate, right? So it was, you know, a few connected to a company in Maryland, uh, you know, one guy down in Louisiana, another one in Texas, a few guys from from California. And so it sort of, you know, was really unclear who exactly brought them together. But what has become clear is at least who they were working with on the ground in Haiti. And so we know, you know, at least a group of them showed up on a private plane on Saturday morning, February 16th. 
And they were met at the airport by two local businessmen, a guy, Josue Lecomte and Jessner Champagne. They both work for a company, Preble Riche, which is a civil engineering firm, you know, exists mostly on sort of government contracts and, and other, uh, you know, international work that they've done uh, in Haiti. So if you look a little bit more at who these guys actually are, Leconte and Champagne, Josue Leconte, who is, uh, you know, on the paperwork, the president of the company, is actually an American citizen, uh, you know, sort of widely considered close to former Haitian president Michel Martelly. Uh, and then you've got Jessner Champagne. Uh, now, Jessner was arrested in the United States in 1996 on an arms trafficking charge. Uh, it was actually the former president, Michel Martelly, who paid his bail back then. Uh, in fact, his court documents, the address was in his court documents, was a house owned by Martelli. So you can sort of start to see where these connections go. And I mean, if you want to sort of get into the, the, the nitty gritty of these connections, it, it sort of gets even crazier in that Jessner Champagne, one of these one of these businessmen, is actually married uh, to the sister of Martelli's wife, Sophia St. Remy. And so you can sort of start to see this, this network uh, that exists, you know, these people close to the former president. Uh, and clearly that is you know, who the main liaisons were for these contractors. And basically this all goes down. They arrive in the country and they get arrested uh, outside the, the central bank in Haiti, essentially. And their, their, their claim is that they're there to do some sort of security review on the bank. Um, it's a Sunday. What are the chances that their story is, is, is accurate here? <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, to begin with, I mean, like there was a lot of different stories that came out, but certainly the first thing that, you know, uh, an official that that was sort of associated with them said was, you know, they were there. This is just routine security for the bank. Uh, you know, to begin with, the bank director then immediately came out and said, no, 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 we had nothing to do with this. But even if that was, you know, regardless of that, we can sort of get back to the governor of the central bank. But, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this. I mean, there's there's virtually no chance that these would be the guys doing any sort of security assessment for the bank. Uh, you know, I mean, for one, the bank does bring in security experts from time to time. Uh, you know, it's not um, former Navy SEALs with a bunch of semi-automatic rifles. You know, it's like a former general who reviews security operations of tr financial transactions and things like that. Also, it's a Sunday afternoon. I, I mean, right? It doesn't take uh, too much to think of, figure out like that maybe isn't the time that this is going to happen. The bank obviously was closed. Uh, the governor wasn't there, and so what we did find out is that they did actually try and get into the bank. Uh, you know, that much has become clear, uh, and yet we still have no real idea of what exactly they were going to do inside the bank. The U.S. Uh, connections immediately raise suspicion that uh, based on what we know about uh, the U.S.'s regional maneuvering right now that there would likely be a Venezuela angle. And uh, sure enough, th there is a very strong <laughs> Venezuela angle. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure thing. And I mean, obviously, you know, given the current administration, the U.S.'s priorities in the hemisphere, I mean, it is Venezuela, right? And Haiti, uh, you know, fits into that quite quite neatly. You know, so again, sort of 
sort of broader context of what's happening. You know, Haiti has been, um, you know, an ally of Venezuela for a long time. They've benefited from Venezuela's Petro-Caribe program and with the rest of the Caribbean countries have voted sort of as a bloc in support of Venezuela in regional forums, such as the Organization of American States, which has been used by the U.S. for a very long time to try and undermine the Venezuelan government. Now, that switched in January. So Haiti broke with sort of, you know, over a decade of government policy, basically, and sided with the U.S. in not recognizing the Maduro government in Venezuela. Now, obviously, the Haitian government, you know, as we sort of started talking about, had been under siege from internal politics for for a long time. And, that you know, it's clear in the months since they changed their vote at the OAS to vote with the U.S., they've sought to capitalize that on that vote and try and curry favor of U.S. officials in the Haitian uh, administration's own political crisis at home, right? And so, again, you know, I think what we haven't sort of talked about is, right, these guys were arrested in Haiti. and It was, you know, hadn't had their passports stamped. They were traveling with these illegal weapons. Their cars didn't have license plates. Like, okay, there's some, there's some laws that have been broken here, right? And they were being held. And then all of a sudden, three days later, and I was at uh, the courthouse with a number of other journalists, and we're all waiting for their first appearance before a judge. And then all of a sudden, we realized they're actually quietly being escorted to the airport and led through security by U.S. Embassy personnel and put on a commercial flight back to Miami, where they were subsequently let go without charges. Right. And so that's really what sort of starts raising questions about what exactly the U.S. knew, what they were up to and why they might have made this you know, really bold move to intervene. You know, this is not something the U.S. does, right? Uh, you know, it's like stated everywhere on the State Department's website. When you're traveling abroad, if you get arrested, you're going to be subject to those local laws. Uh, you know, this wasn't an extradition. And so, again, you know, putting this all into context, right, there's some serious questions there about what exactly motivated the U.S. to to intervene in this whole affair. And you can add more questions because, well, we can't talk about Venezuela and U.S. policy in Venezuela without talking about Marco Rubio, um, one of the uh, biggest <laughs> proponents of the coup, trying to conduct a coup by Twitter uh, over there. Um, and sure enough, in this story, Marco's name pops up because uh, a couple weeks before this incident, uh, he was actually meeting with people who are connected to it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, so, you know, I mean, he, he met with the foreign minister. We know that, you know, and I, and I think, again, you know, it all sort of fits into this, this um, you know, effort by the Haitian government to sort of curry favor amongst U.S. officials for their vote on Venezuela. And so who do they go to? Marco Rubio. And then the next week, John Bolton. Right. I mean, like, well, who else would you be going to? Right. And so, you know, obviously that uh, raises a ton of red flags. I mean, if you look at sort of Bolton, for example, uh, you know, this isn't somebody who has no previous history with Haiti. Uh, you know, I mean, when he was the U.N. ambassador uh, under Bush at that time, you know, that was a time when there was a U.N. mission uh, coming into Haiti. It was a significant period of time there. There had just been a coup d'etat. In fact, when when Bolton went through his nomination hearing, uh, Senator Chris Dodd actually asked him about a potentially illegal arms shipment that he had made as a, secret, as a Department of State official, uh, sending arms to the Haitian police, many of which appeared to have been, uh, you know, sort of sidetracked into other endeavors. And so, you know, again, like all of these sorts of histories and connections, you know, I mean, and the lack of information about what we actually know these people were up to in Haiti, uh, you know, obviously this leads to a tremendous number of questions. Yeah, the U.S. has uh, intervened as recently directly as, as 2004. There was after the earthquake, uh, the Obama administration just sent uh, a whole bunch of U.S. troops to Haiti without permission. 
Uh, I'm also thinking they, about how like there are certain similarities in this story. The use of uh, private contractors, the uh, the instance of this company that you don't know much information about other than it has a history of doing contracts. Reminds me of the Zun Zaneo scandal in Cuba where you had, I think the company was like Creative Associates, which is some contracting company, but they were operating in Cuba and setting up a, a social network to uh, eventually uh, to eventually cause a rebellion against the government there. Um, it just shows, I guess, the range of, of possibilities that could be going on with this story in Haiti, given how the U.S. has used contractors and the, the way they've, they've operated in nearby countries. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And I think, you know, when you look at sort of the political interest and interventions of the U.S. in Haiti, I mean, you know, you had sort of these these overt uh, action support for coup d'etat in the early 90s and 2004. But, you know, what often goes unlooked is the, the Obama administration and specifically then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's intervention in the 2010 election, where Hillary literally flew to Haiti to pressure the government to put uh, a, a different candidate into a runoff election, that candidate being Michel Martelly, right? The government caved. They threatened aid money after the earthquake, uh, threatened to fly the president out of the country on a plane month before, right? A whole sort of messy situation that that really sort of elevated Martelly into the presidency really directly. And subsequently, you know, has sort of meant that the U.S. has provided that political support to the Haitian government ever since. And so the president now is no longer Martelly, it's his chosen successor. But when you look at the interest of the U.S. government, I mean, they provided a tremendous amount of political support to the Haitian administration since that 2010 election, since the earthquake. And you think about all that's wrapped up in, in Haiti, right? I mean, it is the legacy of the U.S. post earthquake intervention. It's the legacy of $10 billion of foreign aid. You know, this was supposed to be the government that sort of, you know, changed Haiti after the earthquake. And and this really, you know, sort of exposes some of the rot at the core of that entire system. There's been some other explanations floating around for this team, this mercenary team. One sort of mundane that rich people in Haiti want private security, especially uh, they've seen some of their businesses uh, destroyed or, I guess, uh, windows broken or whatever during some of the rioting and protest we saw in Haiti. Um, two more uh, less mundane, I should say, explanations, including uh, accusations we heard from the prime minister in Haiti that they're there to kill him and other uh, elected officials. Um, there's some uh, some thought that contractors could be there to kill protesters. Um, I guess of all these competing theories, I mean, do any of these sound more plausible than the other? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, it's like I'm hesitant to even offer a guess because I think, you know, there is so much left unknown. I mean, I think when you start sort of going down the rabbit hole of, of what theory could, could fit the facts that we know, you know, there are, there are sort of problems with all of them, right? Um, you know, and so it is, it, it's, it's true that, you know, private entities, Haitian elite, they bring in private security. In fact, at least one of these guys who was arrested had been brought in after those, uh, you know, after that unrest in July that I mentioned, after the fuel price hike by one of the, you know, sort of most well-known elite families in Haiti. Um, but, you know, then again, uh, like 
why the cloak and dagger midnight flight from Baltimore to Port-au-Prince and why are you working with these two sort of businessmen uh, who aren't, you know, the, the sort of Haitian elite who don't have big, you know, sort of assets in the country and things like that raise a bunch of flags. Why are you in unmarked vehicles, et cetera? You know? Um, yeah. The fact that they also, flew, though, they flew out of BWI raises a lot of red flags to me. I mean, they could have, these are people from different parts of the country. Contractors have connections, but I guess they came from BWI, which would be where a bunch of spooks probably fly. Out of. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Definitely doesn't look, doesn't look super, super above board. Right. I mean, I think, you know, the other thing to keep in mind with the flight is that I think it's most likely that not all of the people who were arrested were on that plane. Uh, it's likely that some of them entered the country, either, uh, you know, on a commercial aircraft or were even in the country beforehand. We know at least some of them were on that plane. So, you know, it's possible there was, you know, more than one flight. Um, but, you know, we do know that at least some of them showed up on that plane. Yeah. It, would have, it would have been too on the nose if they had left from Dulles, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so touching, yeah, <laughs> touching on what we were sort of discussing before and the uh, bipartisan consensus, as it were, on intervening in Haiti, uh, from what you know following this story, have Democrats on Capitol Hill been asking any questions about this incident? Because it seems like something that uh, with with the Dems having subpoena power in the House, that the public should be, you know, privy to some of whatever happened here, you know? Everything yeah, no, I think that's here. an excellent point. And I mean, I think, you know, like, right, even if there's, and you know, I think it's increasingly unlikely this is the case, but even if you can come up with an entirely sort of, uh, you know, innocent explanation for all of this. There's still the fact that the U.S. intervened before they faced Haitian justice and got them back to the U.S., right? Yeah. And so regardless of what they were doing in country, it's that sort of action that I think, you know, demands answers here in Washington, right, and from members of Congress. And, you know, I know there have been, um, you know, some staff and some members themselves who have who have raised this issue, who have asked questions. You know, my impression, at least what I understand at this point, is that, uh, there has not been much information forthcoming from the State Department. Uh, and so, you know, we'll see. I think, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to get something out about this and and, and raise these issues is, is for exactly that reason. You know, it's really easy to sort of look at things happening in Haiti and say, oh, it's just some, you know, some crazy shit in Haiti, nothing to see here, whatever, and uh, move on and forget about it, right? But these things have, you know, big impacts and they have, uh, you know, lasting impacts. And I think, you know, it certainly is the case today in Haiti. And it's important that... That, uh, you know, people in the U.S. try and get to the bottom of what, what role their government's playing in, in Haitian affairs. Do you get the sense, as you were reporting this story, that things are unraveling, that, that, that there are threads that can be pulled to get more truth about what exactly happened? Or did you get a sense that this is all getting shut down? This is people are, are, are have one person has let, fled the country here uh, in Haiti and that nobody wants this reported any further. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, there's certainly there's certainly strings to be pulled. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, and I think, you know, there, there's a few people out there who, who probably have an interest in continuing to pull. But, for, you know, I, I think there's no doubt that there's been an effort to, to sort of quiet this down. Uh, I mean, you look at uh, maybe no better example than the Haitian prime minister, right, who, who spoke to CNN uh, two days after the arrest and called them terrorists who were sent to the country to assassinate him. Right. And 
and then shut up entirely, <laughs> right? Like, uh, why? Right? Or I mean, even like, one who, of the mercenaries. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, who, how did that change? And then, you know, there uh, have been questions from, from members of parliament in Haiti, uh, and, you know, they've gotten really unsatisfactory answers. Uh, I think there's been a lot of pressure on folks, including the prime minister, to sort of quiet down and, and stop talking about this. Um, you know, and I think it is interesting the way you sort of see its political impact play out in Haiti, right? Because you had the president who was, you know, people were calling for his resignation uh, and who would be, you know, sort of the one most likely to take over in that situation was his prime minister. And so when the prime minister called them terrorists there to kill him, I mean, it was seen as, you know, a direct blow to the president. Like this was this power struggle in Haiti emerging for all to see, you know, on full display and broadcast on CNN internationally, that there was a power crisis at the top of the executive branch in Haiti. Uh, you know, that certainly wasn't the image the U.S. was real excited about broadcasting uh, in Haiti. You know what I mean? Like they were trying to shore up the government, and ensure stability, and that didn't help. And so, you know, there's an extent to which the whole effort to sort of quiet this down and, and make it sweep it under the rug and get these guys out of the country was very much, you know, whether this is the motivating factor or not, the outcome is that it it served to lessen the political crisis in Haiti, right? It was used to smooth over these relations and to try and sort of calm things down at the political level in Haiti. And even the mercenaries themselves have uh, remained quiet, except one did an Instagram post thanking... <laughs> Uh, thanking U.S. authorities for saving them, which he then uh, immediately deleted. You have to wonder who's keeping them all quiet, too. Yeah, no, it's really interesting, you know, in that they've they've all been uh, extremely quiet. Uh, they don't really seem interested in talking to anybody, uh, you know, to the extent that there have been some sort of uh, comments made by them and sort of passive-aggressive things, mostly just blaming fake news in the media for sort of nonsense and, oh, this is all, like, nothing to see here, sort of sort of thing. Uh, but obviously, I mean, there's just tremendous questions yet to be answered, right? I mean, not least of which is like, who actually paid for that, you know, paid them to go do this, you know, sort of very basic information that's still missing from this story. Uh, and, you know, you saw that, that, that note that went out on Instagram, right, that thanked the U.S., but also, you know, blamed the, uh, you know, this a political fight between the president and prime minister. And that, that's all that happened. This is a normal thing. And it was just that they got up, caught up in politics. As I said, I mean, there's no question that this became political, uh, but it seemed that that was sort of used after the fact as a justification for the U.S. to intervene to remove them, right? So they could say, oh, well, once the prime minister called them terrorists, uh, there was nothing we could do. We had to get them out of the country. And that's sort of been used as to sort of justify what is unjustifiable. Well, Jake, uh, we appreciate the hard work you've done reporting the story. Jake Johnson is the uh, lead author of the Haiti Relief and Reconstruction Watch blog. His story is called Our Boss Will Call Your Boss. Very memorable <laughs> title there. Jake is also the uh, research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research uh, in Washington, D.C. And you can follow him on Twitter at Jacob with a K Johnson. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Let's hope no one calls our boss. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. <laughs> Thanks again to Jake. That'll do it for the show today. Thanks to our sponsor, the Congressional Dish podcast hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com. Another sponsor, the Middle East Report at merip.org. 
We're back next week. We're here in DC so that you don't have to be.